Today's episode is taken from The Tales of Old Japan by A.B. Mitford and scholarly works by John A. Tucker and Bito Masahide. So this week was supposed to go differently. I thought it was high time to go back and do a more famous case like we've done with H.H. Holmes, something pretty much everyone under the sun has heard about at some point in passing, and separate the fact from fiction. And I decided on a listener suggestion I thought was pretty good. The Man in the Iron Mask. You know, the guy made famous from uh, Alexander Dumas and Voltaire. French dude locked away in the best steel, no one knows why, no one knows who he was. Fiction often says he's King Louis XIV's twin brother or something. And it sounded like a fun, mysterious topic until I started researching it. It turns out that some topics are too mysterious, because record-wise, there's just about zilch to work with. All the zaniest theories are obviously untrue. The likelihood that the queen hid a pregnancy in the French court, a clique so sex-crazed and gossipy that they stood around the king and queen's bed and offered advice during their consummation night, it's just impossible. The rest is just conjecture. And that was disappointing because I really wanted to go back and re-examine a crime that is more legend than fact. But going through my extremely large backlog of ideas, I stumbled upon one I've considered many times, but never from this angle. A crime so grand, so legendary, that it's the bedrock of an entire genre of Japanese literature, theater, and film. A crime famous for being one of the greatest narratives of history. A crime that many argue might have broken the law, but if the criminals hadn't done it, they would have violated the very tenets of the Samurai Code itself. Historians refer to it as the Akko incident, culturally. We call it the legend of the 47 Ronin. Now, if you've never heard the legend of the 47 Ronin, you're in for a real treat. If you have, well, you're still in for a real treat, but... It's one of the greatest historical tales ever. It's the tale of a necessary murder, of an elaborate plan by 47 samurai to storm a castle and kill a man for his slight against their leader. It has one of the greatest villains of all history, Lord Kira, and one of the greatest protagonists, Oshi. It is, I truly think, one of the top 10 historical tales ever told. It's a bedrock of Japanese culture. But I was curious, exactly how much was exaggerated fiction. Because I've read and watched many Chishingura, the name of fictionalized accounts of the 47 Ronin, but what's truth? What's conjecture? What's just well-written dialogue? That's what I set to find out. If you've never read a tale of the 47 Ronin, I'd suggest stopping what you're doing and taking five minutes to read an account, any account, on the internet or watch a short film on YouTube because we're going to deconstruct this larger-than-life historical event. And while I think the Akko incident is still an amazing story, this sort of podcast where we go into analytical depth is sort of like explaining why a joke is funny, or the science behind a Star Trek gadget. It just takes a little bit from the story itself. So if you're going fresh in on this, you've been warned. For everyone else, let's take one of the greatest legendary crimes of all time and separate the fact from fiction. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History.
On the 21st of April, 1701, in the Harima province near modern-day Kobe, Japan, the unthinkable happened. Asano Naganori, daimyo, and lord of the Ako Domain, attempted to murder the senior master of ceremony, Kira Yoshihisa, within the four walls of the Edo Castle. This particular day was a special occasion. A ceremony was taking place between the shogun, the military leader of Japan, and the emperor in which gifts were to be offered to the imperial envoys. Asano was the host for the emperor. Kira was, in effect, the planner for the event. Kajikawa, an intermediary at the event, met Asano in the pine gallery of the castle. The event had been moved up to 10 o'clock in the morning for the sake of the emissaries. Kajikawa believed Asano was tense, speaking only in brief sentences. A few minutes later, Kajikawa greeted Kira across the corridor and began discussing with him the schedule for the ceremony. That's when Asano struck. The only surviving historical account is from that intermediary. Bito Matsuhide describes the moment. Quote, As Kajikawa stood talking to Kira about the scheduling of the ceremony, someone came up from behind and struck at Kira. This is what happened these past days, he shouted. Literally, do you remember my grudge from these past days? It turned out to be Asano Naganori. Kira whirled in surprise and tried to escape, whereupon Asano struck him a second time, and he fell to the floor, face down. At that moment, Kajikawa leaped at Asano and restrained him by the arms. After this, a crowd that included Kajikawa, the officials, and others surrounded Asano and escorted him to the Willow Room. Throughout, he repeated words to the effect that, quote, I have had a grudge against Kira for some time, and although I much regret the time and the place, I had no choice but to strike him. He spoke in such a loud voice that others sought to calm him, and he finally quieted down. After a bit, Asano was handed over to the inspectors, and Kajikawa records that he had no knowledge of what happened after that. End quote. Kira had been struck in the back with a slashing cut. The second blow had struck a metal strap on a ceremonial hat, saving him from a lethal blow, but giving him a scar. Asano never explained why he attacked Kira, saying only, quote, bearing a grudge, I completely forgot where I was, and struck out, end quote. What is important is not just that this was attempted murder. It was attempted murder at an imperial ceremony in the imperial castle. The emperor was considered a god in imperial Japan. Attacking anyone for any reason in the walls was considered a death sentence. The attack occurred in the morning. By 4 p.m., the inspectors of the shogun arrived with a sentence. Asano was to commit seppuku, ritual suicide. It was the traditional capital punishment for military officers. He would impale himself on his own dagger, through the stomach, moving it back and forth through his insides, disemboweling himself first across the belly, then up and across the chest, without a trace of emotion on his face. All the while, a retainer would stand by, sword in hand held high above his head. Should Asano betray even a hint of pain on his face, the retainer was to strike Asano's head off, to preserve his honor. Asano gave his last message to his retainers back in Akko, quote, I should have informed you about this manner in advance, but what happened today could not be helped, and it was impossible for me to let you know. You must wonder about the situation. End quote. Around 6 p.m., Asano committed seppuku, 
While we don't have a detailed historical account from the event, we do have accounts from others. One of them is written by the British diplomat to Japan, Algernon Freeman Mitford, from the late 19th century. He is, coincidentally, the one from which the most famous English version of the 47 Ronin tale comes from. Although he did relate the death of Asano, he was not there to witness it, as he was writing a century and a half later. However, he did witness the death of another samurai in February of 1868. He explains the night and execution that thousands of samurais had undergone for hundreds of years. Quote, The condemned man was Taki Zenzaburo, an officer of the Prince of Bizen, who gave the order to fire upon the foreign settlement of Hyogo in the month of February 1868. Bowing, the speaker allowed his upper garments to slip down to his girdle and remain naked to the waist. Carefully, according to custom, he tucked his sleeves under his knees to prevent himself from falling backwards, for a noble Japanese gentleman should die falling forwards. Deliberately, with a steady hand, he took the dirk that lay before him. He looked at it wistfully, almost affectionately. For a moment he seemed to collect his thoughts for the last time. And then, stabbing himself deeply below the waist on the left-hand side, he drew the dirk slowly across to the right side, and turning it in the wound, gave a slight cut upwards. During this sickeningly painful operation, he never moved a muscle of his face. When he drew out the dirk, he leaned forward and stretched out his neck. An expression of pain for the first time crossed his face, but he uttered no sound. At that moment, the retainer, who, still crouching by his side, had been keenly watching his every movement, sprang to his feet, poised his sword for a second in the air, there was a flash, a heavy, ugly thud, a crashing fall. With one blow, the head had been severed from the body. A dead silence followed, broken only by the hideous noise of the blood throbbing out of the inert heap before us, which but a moment before had been a brave and chivalrous man. It was horrible. The retainer made a low bow, wiped his sword with a piece of paper which had been ready for the purpose, and retired from the raised floor and the stained dirk was solemnly borne away, a bloody proof of the execution. End quote. Asano's death played out almost exactly as Taki's did, except that the retainer missed his mark, striking Asano right below his ear. His second then held up Asano's head to show it to the Grand Inspector and the witnesses. Why would Asano kill himself in such a gruesome, shocking manner? Why did he attack Kira at all? For many, this entire affair is foreign. Mitford describes it as barbaric, which, if you listen to this podcast, is amusing when you consider Europeans' propensity for torturous executions. But once we understand what fueled a samurai, we can understand why Asano was willing to commit seppuku, and possibly why he attempted to murder Akira in the first place. And that fuel was honor. Japanese samurai followed the code of Bushido, the way of the warrior, it's similar to the European knight's code of chivalry, but taken to an extreme. Samurais were expected to be efficient killers, but also to be tempered with compassion, peace, loyalty, and respect. Honor and judge of one's character was possibly the most important virtue in all of Bushido. One's honor extended not just to themselves, but to their family, to the people around them. It also meant that if you were dishonored by someone, whether through word or action, you had to meet that challenge 
in kind. And although historically it's not clear why Asano attacked Kira, it is clear that this was over honor. The standard explanation for Asano's attempted murder is that he was shamed by Kira. Kira had not given him the correct details on the reception of the Imperial envoys. He believed that they were due to arrive later in the day. They were actually arriving very soon. Asano's planning would only be half done, and it would be a shameful display to the Imperial envoys. Kira's failure to relay this information appropriately, and thus the correct manners of etiquette, is widely believed to be the reason for Asano's outburst. Asano had been dishonored, and he would repay that in kind to Kira. Legend also accepts that Kira had attempted to extract a bribe from Asano, which would have been a dishonorable action on Kira's part. In this version of the tale, Kira is a greedy miser, prideful and arrogant, the opposite of the samurai code. In Mitford's account, he is introduced thusly, quote, Kira was a man greedy of money, and he deemed that the presents which the two daimyos, according to time-honored custom, had brought him in return for his instruction, were mean and unworthy. He conceived a great hatred against them, and took no pains in teaching them, but on the contrary, rather sought to make laughingstocks of them. End quote. The incident that tradition cites is what took Asano over the edge is when, after enduring insult after insult, Kira ordered Asano to tie his shoes. And when Asano did so, Kira insulted him, exclaiming, Why, how clumsy you are! You cannot so much as tie up the ribbon of a sock properly. Anyone can see that you are a boar from the country and know nothing of the manners of Edo. But none of that is actually in the historical record. It's all conjecture from poets and playwrights. Contemporaries of the time believed that he was mad. In fact, the next best account after Kajikawa's is that of Ochiai Yozeman, a chamberlain. By his account, Asano reportedly confessed that he had led, quote, an unfortunate life, one afflicted by illness and suffering. In whatever endeavor, he had been unable to find peace and stability. Therefore, he had not been mindful of the circumstances and so badly behaved in the castle, end quote. Some historians have speculated that this admission is enough evidence to state that Asano was mentally ill. It's clear that bad blood existed between Asano and Kira, and the most likely culprit is that Asano's pride was wounded by Kira over the preparation for the ceremony. It's also evident that it was premeditated, although by how much is unclear. Edo law dictated that no one attack each other in the castle, so no one would expect a person to attack them in the castle itself. Asano would get the upper hand if he did so. He attacked Kira from behind without challenge. He must have thought it through ahead of time, so the whole shoe-tying incident from fictional accounts is unlikely. But whether he did or not, he failed his mission. Asano tried to kill Kira, and by breaking the law of Edo in the Samurai Code, he had to kill himself. Open and shut case, right? But if that was the end of the story, it would have never passed under legend. Heck, just seven years after the Akko incident, in 1709, another daimyo who was hosting the Imperial Envoy for a ceremony killed a different master of ceremony at a temple. Talk about deja vu. And that incident isn't even a blip on the cultural radar of Japan. At the time, the public did not even care that there was an outburst. It's barely in the public record, and what there is is mostly jeers and jests at Asano's failure. So what happened? It all comes back to the matter of honor. Kira was declared innocent of any wrongdoing, and on its face it makes sense. 
When the military police questioned eyewitnesses, they asked whether Kira had made to draw his own sword in defense. Fighting within the walls of Edo was forbidden, so he too would be breaking the law if he did so. Kira had not. The police reasoned that Asano had broken the law and therefore had to be punished. Kira had resisted doing so, so he was let off scot-free. But was this unfair? That's the question that revolves around all of the events that spill from this single moment. Because if it's fair, then the point is mute. Kira's innocent. But many of Asano's men argued that the police had made their decision with prejudice. One of the laws of Bushido is Kenka Rishibai. If an encounter turns into a violent fight, both sides are equal to blame. Now, the police didn't view this as a fight, more like a one-sided attempted murder. Most historians agree with that, too. But complicating things is the fact that no true warrior would ever flee. Every samurai must stand his ground for honor, and Kira didn't do that. There's historical precedence for this, too. In previous incidents of assault within Edo's walls, both parties were punished. The attacker was always sentenced to die via seppuku, but the defender was almost always banished from the castle. This was especially true for people who fled without response to an attack, which seems sort of counterintuitive by Western standards. If fleeing is punishment with banishment, yet violent response is punished with seppuku, why respond against an attacker if the penalty is death? Simply put, in Japanese society, the physical penalty was nothing compared to the cultural penalty of an affront to your honor. Remember, this is a society in which samurai committed seppuku to prove a point. There's this really famous incident that Mitford describes in his book about seppuku, where at one point, a retainer literally goes and kills himself and commits seppuku just to prove that he would do it for another master. So it's not that surprising that samurai expected to respond in a cultural manner that would break the codified laws of Edo. And to make matters even more complicated, there's also the fact that Asano's death carried serious political and economic weight that would impact all of his former domain. His land was worth 53,000 koku. A koku would be the equivalency of enough rice to feed a man for a year. 53,000 koku would be like $3.5 million today. In most fictional accounts, guess who inherited that land? If you guessed Kira, you would be right. Although there's no actual evidence for this, most likely it would be divided up into imperial land. In the immediate aftermath, the former samurais of Asano debated what to do. The original plan was to go and attack Kira's mansion directly in Edo as revenge, but rumors held that Kira had been taken under the protection of the Yesugi clan, one of the largest clans and worth almost three times the Akko domain. They concluded that it would be, in their words, a dog's death. Almost everyone favored either holding the Akko castle or following Master Asano into death by committing suicide. Oishi Yoshio, Asano's right-hand man, sent out a petition that stated, quote, We believed at first that it was because Lord Kira had been killed that our master Takumi was sentenced to seppuku, but we then learned that Kira had in fact survived. The samurai in our retainer band are all unsophisticated types, whose thoughts are only for their master, and who have no grasp of the finer points of law, and who therefore regret that they are unable to hand over the castle, so long as their opponent remains alive and well. We are not asking that Lord Kira be punished, but we beseech you 
to take some measure that our retainer band will find satisfactory. End quote. Just an interesting translation note here, by the way. Unsophisticated, if we translate it literally, would be country bumpkin. That's how they refer to themselves. Perhaps the Akko samurai were simply being open to the possibility of being wrong and referring to themselves as country bumpkin, but they obviously disagreed with the military police's decision. The message that was sent back to them stated that their letter was, quote, a result of their ignorance of things here in the capital, end quote. In many ways, the Akko samurai were followers of an old order of traditional Bushido. The military police were more than willing to bend the rules of Bushido for the sake of peace, but the Akko samurai did not want peace. They wanted justice. So it seems strange that when the military police arrive at the castle, it was turned over peacefully by Oishi. Many of the samurai disagreed with this, but Oishi argued that the next leader, which would be Asano's brother, would be punished if they went through with their plan to defend the castle, or even if they'd committed seppuku. Oishi argued instead that they needed to restore the Asano house to its former place of honor. But that immediately fell through when, in 1702, the status of the Asano clan as a vassal to the shogun was terminated. They were no longer samurai. They were ronin. Wandering men. Bushido tradition stipulated that they should commit seppuku, but by this point, there was more of a conservative outlook uh, during this time period. Typically, at this point, they would look for employment, but the only way to serve another master would be if one's previous master released them. Unfortunately for them, that master, Lord Asano, was dead. Many ronin were considered in the same caste as criminals, often because they were criminals, Many ronin turned to banditry and mercenary work to survive. But not these men. They were former Asano men, and in attempting to kill Kira, Asano had made a challenge. Masahide writes, quote, For the retainers, it did not matter why Asano attacked Kira, or why he had failed in his mission. All that mattered was that their lord had challenged Kira to a fight as a samurai. Given this fact, unless he either succeeded in killing Kira or died together with his opponent, his honor would be sullied. So for his retainers, in turn, to ignore their lord's dishonor was a matter of personal dishonor for themselves as vassals. As Haribe declared to Oishi, So long as Lord Kira is alive, how can we show our faces anywhere while letting our lord's enemy be? End quote. Now, it's important to understand that in the fictional accounts of the 47 Ronin, Kira is the obviously evil villain, Asano the wronged master, and the Ronin the dispensers of true justice. But in reality, it was Asano who had been the aggressor. Even Asano did not admit he was a victim, but more importantly, Oishi and the rest of the Ronin did not care whether he was the victim. Kira could be a wonderful, moral, decent human being, Asano could have been completely in the wrong, mentally ill. He may have tried to murder Kira in cold blood, without provocation. But what mattered was not whether Kira had wronged Asano. What mattered is that their master had started something that they felt they needed to finish for honor. What mattered was that Kira was still alive, and he needed to die. His death was the point that needed to be proven. In the fictional tales of the 47 Ronin, they are the dispensers of justice, 
they are there for vengeance. But this wasn't a revenge mission. This wasn't about avenging their lord. This was an agreement to murder a man. Not to try, but to succeed. To prove a point about their own personal honor. And when you put it in those words, the Ronins stop looking so much like the good guys on a mission and more like a group of morally gray fanatics, which I think in today's pop culture might be a more interesting story anyways. Now, the part of this story that makes it so fantastical, so legendary, is not just the possible motivations. It's not the traditional narrative of Kira as this perfect evil villain, arrogant and all that. It's that the attack was so thought out in advance, and how the Ronin forsook their own honor in many ways to preserve it in the long run. Of the hundreds of men who had pledged to defend the castle from the military police, only 47 continued to plot in secret to kill Kira after giving up the castle. Their ringleader was Oishi. It was clear to them that with Kira under the guard of the Yesugi, it would be a suicide mission to attack him. Thus, they decided to wait for a while and plan a coordinated attack on Kira's mansion when he least expected it. This is where the legends really embellish the Ronin story. The majority of the legendary narratives center around the setup for the attack on Kira's mansion as the samurai plan these elaborate methods of getting Kira to let his guard down. They state things like Oishi and the others pretending to be carpenters and craftsmen and merchants, that Oishi himself divorced his wife and sent her and their children away, that he was a drunkard so that Kira's spies would not see him, that they frequented brothels and prostitutes, that they refused to marry women knowing that they would soon have to face death. Probably the most famous incident is when Oishi passes out in the street from his drunkenness and a passerby kicks him in the face, spits on him, and insults him. Mitford describes the man as saying, quote, Is this not Oishi, who is counselor of Asano, and who, not having the heart to avenge his lord, gives himself up to the women in wine? See how he lies drunk in the public street, faithless beast, fool and craven, unworthy of the name of samurai. End quote. Yeah, right. You think a man hellbent on murder over personal honor is going to let that happen? Give me a break. The reality is we have none of that in the historical record. We do know that they did think through their actions. They expressed to one another in letters fear of retaliation by the government on their families and wives. But other than that, it's pretty silent. In fact, the records only pick up a year later in January of 1703 when they finally assault Kira's mansion. The whole period between their surrender of the castle and the assault itself is a blank in history. We can offer some conjectures here. They probably did take up different professions, because as Ronin, they couldn't pick up their service with other masters. They probably were carpenters and merchants and the like. It's probably doubtful also that they engaged in any dishonorable behavior. This whole ordeal was over personal honor, so they wouldn't be giving that up for the sake of some future honor and a possibility of Kira's death. All we do know is that in the dead of night on January 30th of 1703 by the Western calendar, sometimes you'll see it as December 14th, 1702 by the Japanese calendar, but in the dead of night, in the silent snow, small groups of two or three men began to arrive in the shadows of Kira's mansion, arranging themselves at the front and rear gates. At 4 a.m. in the morning, they struck. They had planned their attack down to the letter. They were geared for battle while Kira's retainers were exhausted from the night watch. They intentionally didn't use any sort of torches or fire, fearing that it would set aflame the whole city. Silently, 
In the dark, they pounced on the unsuspecting guards. Their armor was handmade, and you can still see it today in museums. It's dark and really good blending in with the surroundings. Furthermore, they picked their targets carefully, penetrating the compound slowly. Sixteen of Kira's men were killed, a farther twenty-three wounded. Those that surrendered were ordered to step aside as they continued their hunt for Kira. John A. Tucker picks up the narrative, quote, By 5 a.m., some ronin, including Kayano Wasuke Sunanari, had penetrated the inner recesses of the mansion where they found Kira's bedroom. Kayano reportedly touched the bedding and noticed its warmth, and so concluded that the retired master of ceremonies must have recently fled his chamber. Kira was reportedly discovered when Hazama noticed sounds coming from a charcoal storehouse adjoining the kitchen. Hazama asked who was in the shed and probed it with a spear. Two armed guards jumped out and were promptly cut down. Next, an elderly man emerged wielding a short sword. Hazama stabbed him with his spear. Other ronin were called in to determine whether the elderly man was Kira. Although they could not determine from looking at his forehead, which is where his scar would have been from Asano's attack, they did find a notable scar on the man's back, establishing in their minds that it was Kira. Hazama then decapitated him, wrapped the head in the victim's white robes, and whistled to signal that Kira's head had been taken. End quote. In the legends, Kira is not attacked on sight. Instead, he's given the option to commit seppuku and refuses, and it's Oishi who decapitates him. Evidently, in the reality, in the heat of battle, such a chance wasn't available to them. On a whim, the ronin marched 10 kilometers across Edo to the Asano family temple and deposited the head there. At 9 a.m. in the morning, the ronin showed up, covered in blood. They themselves were surprised they had even gotten this far. Most had expected to be accosted by the shogun's men, or the Yasuge en route. They presented the head of Kira to the grave of Lord Asano. While that sounds like one of the coolest noble acts this side of Star Wars, the reality is that they were, in their own words, country bumpkins. The temple priest later stated that they were completely clueless on how to conduct a Buddhist graveside ceremony, and that, quote, without temple guidance, the grave presentation of Kira's head would have been a rather uncouth affair, end quote. They even had to wash the head to verify it was Kira. After they were finished, the ronin, not really sure what to do next, went to the temple kitchen and left the head in a set of stacked boxes, which is where it was found. Two messengers let the shogun know what they had done. The ronin left copies of a document titled The Declaration of Asano Takumi and Kami's Retainers, signed with their names as an explanation for why they had attacked Kira. It states, as its reason, quote, Asano did not complete his plan, and so harbored regrets to the bottom of his heart. Finding this difficult to bear, we, his retainers, became enraged at Kira, a man of exalted birth. While we hesitated to take action, we know that a person cannot live beneath the same heaven as the enemy of his lord or father. Thus, we found it impossible to remain silent. Today, we are resolved to make our way into Kira's residence and bring to a conclusion the intention of our deceased lord. End quote. The ronin presented themselves that evening to the shogunate. They were placed into custody as the shogunate decided what to do. It took two months to reach a decision on what to do with the ronin. Forty-six had participated in the attack. One had gone across the countryside proclaiming the events. 
the Ronin had violated the sixth article of the Samurai Code, which stated they would not take oaths or form conspiracies. At the same time, they had fulfilled the dying wishes of their lord in true loyal fashion. They had fulfilled their individual morality while also violating the social order. They had fulfilled the moral law while transgressing the social one. They were ordered to commit seppuku. In effect, this was a compromise between those two. In such an execution, they would not be criminals. They would be samurai. The 46 ronin who directly participated in the act committed seppuku. The 47th, the one who had proclaimed the events, was pardoned by the shogun. He lived until 87. All 47 were buried in Sengakuji, in front of the tomb of their master in the temple. You can still visit their tombs today. Right after the ceremony, the daimyo banned all accounts of the ronin in fiction for a long period of time. As such, we have very little information from the time period itself, but starting around 1748, Chushingura began to crop up, fictional accounts of the 47 ronin. Now, 300 years later, it is found in kabuki theater and puppet plays, in novels, manga, anime, film, television. In the Confucian religion, there is still debate over whether the 47 ronin should be worshipped or condemned. It's a bedrock of Japanese culture, because when you read the fictional version, everything seems mythical. We know who's good and who's evil. We know it's poetic tragedy. And the historical narrative also leans in that direction as well. But the historical narrative also is a lot more morally dubious. It's a lot more condemning of the ronin's murder, and a lot foggier about that period of time between 1701 and 1703. And that got me thinking, how important is historical fiction to society? I mean, we do this all the time. Rewrite the historical narrative, blend it with some made-up truth that punches up the narrative, and repackage it with a tagline based on a true story. But maybe we don't make clear enough how much is true and how much is fiction, and I think that's where I have the biggest problem. Maybe we should put, like, an ingredients list on them. This is 45% fact, 65% fiction. I do harp on historical fiction a lot. But let's face it, without it, many of us wouldn't be interested in history today. We wouldn't have learned moral lessons from our favorite books or films or shows. Sometimes historical fiction, like the Chishingura, set forth a whole new zeitgeist for the people. Historical fiction has a place in culture. We just have to be willing to separate the larger-than-life fiction from the real facts of the past. Hey, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening to the end. I thought before I'd leave, I needed to make some comments about the current events in the past week. I'm sure you've seen all over the news about El Paso and Dayton. But what you might not know is that Katie and I actually live in Ohio. So the Dayton shooting has come up a lot in talks around the workplace and with each other. And while typically I don't comment on those sort of events... I was affected when on Friday I went down to Dayton for some work on John Dillinger. And while I was at Wright State University, I saw this big rock about the size of a car. And if you want, you can go onto our social media pages on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and see what I'm talking about. But it was graffitied, and the graffiti said, Gun Laws Now, hashtag Dayton Strong. And what really affected me was next to those was nine marks. Nine marks for the nine victims who died at Dayton. And I think at that moment, one thing I thought was, 
This wasn't necessary. This didn't have to happen. Those nine marks represent lives that died in less than 30 seconds from the first gunshot. And police were on the scene right then and there. And if you follow this podcast, you know that I'm a conscientious objector. It means that I'm not a big fan of firearms. And I'm not normally one to comment on them publicly. But seeing those nine marks, it struck me how those could have been prevented. And I'm not saying that universal background checks or a ban on assault weapons could have solved everything. There might still be some marks up there. But the fact that nine people were able to die in less than 30 seconds, something's wrong about that. And if we can't get behind at least some sort of gun control measures, well then we should be cynical because it's going to happen again. I've grown up all my life in a world where mass shootings occur daily. And as a teacher, I had to spend a few hours every year talking about and simulating what it would be like if there was a mass shooting. And if you've never had to explain to a nine-year-old what to do if they've been shot, or if their friend's been shot, or their brother and sister has been shot, that's not a world I want to live in. And I don't think that has to be a reality. Gun control might not solve the problems of mass shooting. I think that that is a cultural problem, but it sure can get us a step farther in the right direction. So please, if you're somebody who's affected by this, call your congressmen, call your senators, your state representatives, your governor, because something's going to have to change. Otherwise, we're going to be seeing this same narrative a week from now and a week after that and the week after that. And that's not a world I think we have to live in. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. 